This is More Than Work, the podcast reminding you that your self-worth is made up of more than your job title. Each week, I'll talk to a guest about how they discovered that for themselves. You'll hear about what they did, what they're doing, and who they are. I'm your host, Rabia. I work in IT, perform stand-up comedy, write, volunteer, and, of course, podcast. Thank you for listening. Here we go. Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening, wherever you are and whenever it is that you're listening. This is the April 13th episode, but you could be listening anytime, which is the beauty of this podcast or any podcast. First of all, I want to let you know, if you are listening in April of 2022, Podchaser, P-O-D-C-H-A-S-E-R, is doing an initiative right now where they're donating 25 cents for every review left on their site. So you can review episodes or you can review the actual podcast. And that money is going to World Central Kitchen's efforts in Ukraine. And if you're watching this on YouTube, you saw me look over. That's because I wanted to make sure I was getting it right. But um, I guess I'll just talk really quick this week. I mean, I don't want to get into too much. I just want to kind of get to the episode. But I did see a couple of musical acts that were really fun in London. And I just want to pass them along to you. So Yard Act, they're an Arctic Monkeys kind of sound post-punk, but have a political little edge to them. So that was a lot of fun. That was a concert where I realized I'm a lot older than I was a couple of years ago when I was standing in a music club for four hours, bouncing up and down. My knees definitely felt it. And then I saw Anne Lou Cannon, A-N-N-L-I-U-C-A-N-N-O-N. Those are three names. And she's a singer songwriter out of London. And I heard she's going to be working on an album, but she's amazing. So look her up. And then True Strays, they're an Americana kind of band out of Bristol, England. And, oh, man, it was so cool to see them, too. And and Lou Cannon is why I found them. But anyway, they're all great. They're all a lot of fun in their own different ways. Although I did cry during Anne's set, so maybe that's only fun for some people who want to cry (laughs) or who are prone to doing that. But it's just nice to get out and see live music again. I really enjoyed that. Uh, This episode, this guest is... A novelist but also a lawyer and he started out a lawyer but now he's he's a novelist too and it this was a pure like episode of more than work I mean it really was what I was thinking about when I started the podcast talking to someone who's in a career but also find something lo- they love doing and they pursue it I know a lot of people have said oh, I want to write a book I think I have a book in me but it's I don't know, just listening to this guest, Kevin, it was it's hard to do. And I think he's shown a lot of dedication. I also like his approach of researching a lot to to do certain aspects of it. So I'm going to leave it at that just because I, I want to get to the episode and want you to uh, have a listen. Again, you know, leave a review if you would like. If you can subscribe, that'd be awesome. I see reviews and subscriptions and those kind of things coming in on my numbers. And I really appreciate it. I just appreciate you giving me this time every week or just on this episode if you don't come back. But thanks for listening and enjoy. And also have a great day, whatever day you're listening. My guest today is Kevin G. Chapman. He's assistant counsel at Dow Jones and Company and a crime fiction author. So we're going to be talking about both of those things. Uh, Thanks for being on today, Kevin. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Yeah, I'm glad you're here too. So where am I talking to you from today? I am hunkered down in my basement uh, home office in central New Jersey. Oh, wow. And were you always working at home or was this new from the pandemic? No, no. This is only since COVID. Yeah. I, I'm lucky I have a, a home that is only about 15 minutes from my office. 
So my commute was never a big problem, but I worked from home almost never. And now I'm working from home almost always <laughs> for yeah. the last two years. Yeah. Well, it's good you have like a dedicated space. That's good, at least. This is the, the fortune of having grown children. So I have <laughs> my basement all to myself. That's good. Nice. Well, so first of all, being uh, assistant general counsel at Dow Jones and Company, when you set out to work in law, did you think you were going to be at a company like that? Or were you setting out to do something else? Uh, to tell you the truth, when I left law school, I knew that I wanted to be in this field. I'm a labor and employment lawyer. I had done some work in my law school days in that field. I thought it was a nice area to be in. But it never really occurred to me to be in-house in a corporation as opposed to working for a law firm. So I went mm -hmm. to a big law firm in Manhattan for five years, then got laid off from my job mm. at the law firm. That's always fun. And uh, then got another job at a different law firm for three years. At that point, my wife and I were living in a two-bedroom apartment on the Upper West Side of Manhattan with two children. Oh, my gosh. And things were starting to get a little cramped. And we started uh, to think about the future. And my, my then five-year-old was in preschool at a, a lovely place called the Calhoun School on 66th. And the tuition for preschool was a lot. Yeah. And we started doing the math about how much it was going to cost us to put our two children through private school in Manhattan and then college. And then we said, you know what? The suburbs are starting to look really good. So yeah. at that point, I started looking around for what I wanted to do career-wise. And the idea of going in-house at that point really was attractive because you're going to have more time. You're not going to be always at the, the beck and call of your clients on nights and afternoons and weekends. Mm -hmm. So I started looking and I interviewed at oh, four or five, six different companies, but I landed at the Wall Street Journal at, uh, at Dow Jones and mm -hmm. it has worked out really well. We have an office here in, uh, in uh, South Brunswick, New Jersey. So it's central New Jersey, just a little bit north of Princeton. And so, hey, we have a job now and we can get a house now. And we got a house that's 15 minutes away from the office. And then miracle of miracles, 27 years later, I have the same job. I, I haven't that's moved. Amazing. The same house, the same office, the same commute for, for that whole time. So it has worked out really well for me. Wow, that's amazing, actually. That really is. And yeah, and it's good that to going in house, it changed your work hours and things like that. Because even other professions can relate to that. Like if you work for a marketing agency or digital agency, or I'm in consulting, and it's true, you end up adjusting your hours to what a client needs. And it could be two different clients. I had a client one time when I was living in California, one in Europe and one in Texas. And that became a really weird long day, you know, so I totally relate. <laughs> There's yeah. always been a job where you have to put in hours. I mean, no legal mm -hmm. job is, is uh, uh, nine to five, but I was always able to leave my office, come home, have dinner with my family, see my children. And you know, if I had to do three or four hours of work later on in the evening after the kids had gone to bed or whatever, fine, I, I can deal with that. But having a lot more control over my life was was the big part of moving in-house. So my my son actually now is just getting ready to graduate from law school. Oh, wow. He's uh, graduating in May. And uh, so I'll have a lot to say to him about the virtues of leaving the law firm life at some point and thinking about mm -hmm. a corporate uh, corporate law position. It's been good. Cool. So you've been doing this job for 27 years, but at some point within that, you started writing fiction. When did that happen? 
Yeah, well, it's actually 30, 39 years now, if you, if you count my, my, my time at the law firms. And that's how I got into writing, really, is wow. when I got laid off from my very first job. So I was, let's see, it was my, it was my daughter's second birthday. I remember the day. <laughs> <laughs> and so I'd been at the firm for five years out of law school. So I must have been 29, 28, 28, 29 years old. And now I'm suddenly out of a job and I got to start looking for a new one. But I found myself with a lot of f- spare time because looking for a job, although that's a full-time job, it leaves a lot of uh, empty space in the day. You can't yeah. rewrite your resume a hundred times. And uh, so it was during that lull in my professional career that I got an idea for writing a novel. And you know, I've always been a closet writer. And, and frankly, being a lawyer, I'm a writer professionally because mm-hmm. that's what I do. I write briefs, I write memos, I write instructional materials. And, and so writing has always been something I've loved to do. And I had the idea, okay, well, I've got this time. So I, I had an idea and I started working on a book. So I spent about three months working real hard on this book because it gave me something to do while I was just looking mm-hmm. for a new job. That was 1991. Right. And then I got a new job and stopped working on the book because I had a new job. <laughs> <laughs> but I kept, I kept working on it off and on. And at that point, I had just the one child. But doesn't still leave you a lot of lot of free time. But I dabbled at it and worked on it from time to time, and uh, finally finished it up about I want to say nineteen ninety five or nineteen ninety six. And then, of course, you know, what do you do with a book that you just wrote in nineteen ninety six? Amazon doesn't exist. Self publishing doesn't exist. Made some inquiries about trying to figure out how you got a book published, and mm-hmm. quickly learned that I had no chance of getting a book published uh, because who was I? I I got, I'm not a celebrity. I got no name. I've got no cred. So it uh, kind of went on the shelf until 2002 when my wife, who is wonderful, uh, coming up on our 20th wedding anniversary said, Hey, you know that book? How about as your anniversary present, I pay to have it published. Because by that time, there were vanity publishers out there that were mm-hmm. willing to publish a book. So I, I went to a company called Ex Libris, which I think still exists, which was an offshoot of, I think it was Random House at that point. But it was strictly a, you pay and we'll publish your book. And by mm-hmm. publish, we mean we'll print it for you. You know, We'll provide no marketing support. We won't put it in bookstores for you. You pay us and we will print copies. And then we'll deliver those copies in big boxes to your house. And then you're on your own from there. <laughs> <laughs> Fun. <laughs> but I, I still have a few of that, the original and only printing of this book called Identity Crisis. And I gave them out as presents to friends. And I sold, you know, maybe 100 copies. And it's available still on Amazon because, you know, Amazon and now anything can go up there. But it, that was my first, that was my first book. And that got me kind of going. So while I was working, I started that. But it was very slow very slow mm-hmm. process. And then in after that, about 2003, 2004, I started working pretty hard on what I, what the working title of the book was called The Great American Novel. <laughs> I said, it's, it's time for me to write The Great American Novel. <laughs> so if you look in my old archives on my, on my laptop, there's a, there's a file under writing called GAN. That was the name of the working title of that book. 
And I spent 10 years working on that. And as my kids were getting older and I was, you know, working on different things and I, I really enjoyed that. But it was a long, slow process where I'd pick it up for a month and put it down and pick it up two months later and put it down. Uh, and I eventually got it finished, quote unquote, finished in 2016. So about 10 wow. years I spent working on it. And by then, Amazon, hey, <laughs> Amazon. So I was able to self-publish that book. And it is a serious piece of literary fiction. It is it is about politics and self identity and morality and mm-hmm. it's it is it is wonderful and it is you know it's this generation's the great gatsby and nobody was interested in buying it or reading it because literary fiction is not a real big seller and, yeah. and again i don't i'm not a name nobody knows who mm-hmm. i am so so the book's called a legacy of one i actually re-edited it a couple of years ago and republished it with a new cover and i cut 20,000 words off of what was a way too long a manuscript. Mm. And so it's a little better now than it was, but it's still, it just sits there. And every once in a while, someone will buy it and read it and send me a note and say, oh, I really like this. I said, great. Yeah, you and a couple of dozen other people. Uh, (laughs) But I got it out of my system. I I did it. I wrote it, you know, and after I die, people will start reading it. It'll be taught in college tech, you know, college courses, on <laughs> American literature, but I'll be long gone by then. So your first two books, I mean, basically were done over about 20 years then or something. <laughs> yeah. Right. So that's, but I guess when you look at it though, you said you would start and stop and things like that. How did you handle it as far as what you'd tell people you were doing? Because I think what I've seen people do and what I've maybe done like when I was starting the podcast, I told a lot of people I was starting it. And then if I didn't, it would have been embarrassing in a way to not have done it. <laughs> right. And I know like one friend I have was writing a book and he was obsessed about it. And then I asked him the other day, what happened to your book? He goes, Oh, it wasn't very good. And it just kind of stopped. And had, did you have any of those experiences or how was it for you? And how did you handle it? You said you were a closet writer or before. Yeah. I, I, I tell you when I was writing a legacy of one, I didn't tell people mm-hmm. I'm writing a book. It had been going on for such a long time. And it was something that was so sort of far out in the future that I would ever get it finished mm-hmm. that I never really made a big deal about it and said people to people, I'm, I'm writing a book. I had the other book that was available, which was a much more sort of accessible book. It's a detective, a per- PI book. But no, I didn't, I didn't really make a big deal about it. It was really more for me mm-hmm. uh, than it was for... For other people. I talked about it a little bit when I went to a college class reunion because the I went to Columbia undergrad oh. and and the book is set there. About half the book. The book involves characters who all went to Columbia and met each other at Columbia and then the lives that they that they that they had after that. And a lot of it is flashbacks to college days. So I, I talked to people at Columbia about it. I think there was a note in uh, alumni magazine about it after it was uh, published, but didn't didn't really make a, a a big deal about it. Yeah. I wasn't embarrassed about it. I just didn't think people would be interested. No. And, <laughs> and it's interesting. I had someone on relatively recently. It was Jen Z. Keaton. She has an art gallery now, but she was talking about how people don't create just for fun or just for themselves. Like we're in this world now where people create things, whether it's work of writing or paintings or whatever, to post them in a way. Like there's no connection for us as far as like what we enjoy. So it's interesting to just hear about 
you writing for the enjoyment of it and for you and to get a story out, but not necessarily for this other purpose, right? I mean, it would have been nice, yeah, of course, if it sold millions of copies, whatever, but I like just hearing about that kind of experience that you had. So then just looking at the writing practice you had, which seems to have been kind of on and off, now you have a series of novels that we'll talk about. Is your writing practice different now that you're doing more in series and how's that changed? Oh yeah, hundred percent. I mean, I I used to find occasional times to, to to pick up the book and work on it because I'm busy. I've got children. I've got work obligations. I was traveling a lot mm. in those years too for business. I do a lot less traveling now for a variety of reasons, not just related to COVID. But it was something that I would do when I had time. But it was never the first thing on my to do list ever. Mm. It was always down there, th- third or fourth on my on my to-do list. Then I got to the point after I finished A Legacy of One, got that out. Two of my kids had graduated from high school, were off to college. I just had one one kid at home at that point. And it was, you know, the rest of my life was kind of sitting there in front of me where we're not going to have children at home. I'm going to have yeah. a lot more free time. My my work is still busy, but I, you know, I had an opportunity to, to spend a little more time. And it, it was that point I decided that I wanted to write something fun. But not just something fun, but something that I might actually be able to sell. <laughs> and you're right. Yeah. I, you know, I was thinking about let me let me write something that people might really want to buy. And I had actually written a short story back in 2012 for a short story writing competition that was sponsored mm-hmm. by the New Jersey Corporate Council Association, of all things. Yeah. So, so it was all lawyers and and judges and 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 the stories had to be about crime or law. And I decided not to go to to, not to go for law, but to go for mm-hmm. crime. And so I wrote this short story. It was called Fool Me Twice. And it starred an NYPD homicide detective named Mike Stoneman. And uh, I, I won first prize in the, in the short story competition, which was you know, nice. Got yeah. me a, a free year's worth of dues to the association and free admission to all the uh, events that the association does over the course of the year. So that was fun. Uh, but when I when I sat down to say, what do I want to write now? I went back to Mike Stoneman and that short story mm-hmm. and said, I really liked that story. I really liked that character. Let me see if I can come up with a, a whole novel that's just based on on that character. And then I started writing what became Righteous Assassin. And Righteous Assassin could not be any more different from A Legacy of One. I mean, it mm-hmm. was it was just fun. It was, you know, fiction, it's murder, it's yeah. a serial serial murderer case. It's got a lot of relationships in it. And all the books are really about the relationships between the characters. That's really what makes those kinds of fiction books fun. And and so I I cranked that out in a relatively quick two years. So from 2016 to 2018, I worked on uh, Righteous Assassin. And that was really the first time that I started making the writing the top thing on my to-do list. So mm-hmm. after after all the work obligations were done, and you know, after, you know, obviously, my wife and I and my family have a certain amount of obligations <laughs> and, and fun <laughs> things that we do. But whenever I had a moment that was not otherwise booked on my schedule, the writing became the first thing that I would work on. And that really was a change. It was also a change in that with self-publishing the way it is now, you know, over the last 10 years, I really kind of knew what I was doing a lot more. And I, I started thinking about when I decided to publish the book, how was it going to work? 
I started to work on a marketing plan for mm. the book before it was published as opposed to waiting until after it was published and then thinking about the marketing plan. I was doing a lot of reading online about fiction, about self-publishing and about mm -hmm. crime fiction and marketing crime fiction. I was uh, watching podcasts and reading blog articles and trying to educate myself about the business side of self-publishing. And so yeah, that was a real change in my attitude and mm -hmm. my focus when I was going through that. And certainly since then, from between 2018 and, and, and 2021, I published four more books. Yeah. So you know, suddenly, suddenly I'm a writer, uh, yeah. not, not just, not just a, a lawyer who wrote a book, but now I really feel like I'm more of, I'm, I'm an author and, uh, and I'm doing that now consistently. Has your enjoyment of it changed with just having a different way of looking at it. a little bit, but not that much. My my wife and I have a uh, a firm commitment to the idea that I'm not going to write anything that I'm not having fun with. You know, if I'm not enjoying yeah. the story, then don't write it. You know, yeah, I'm not trying to crank out books just for the sake of cranking out books. So we spend a lot of time brainstorming over the plots and the characters and and working on you know, what's going to be an interesting twist for the for, for the next book. I wrote one that was all set on a cruise ship called Lethal Voyage. And I did that specifically because my wife and I are big cruisers. We love going on cruises. We haven't been on one for two years yeah. because of COVID, but, but it's always been something that we really loved doing. So particularly since COVID had started, this was an opportunity for me to write a book about being on a cruise. Yeah. So, and we took, we took people who we had met on cruises and put them in the book. We put, we took mm -hmm. crew, crew members who we had really liked or hated on cruises and put them in the book. And so it was a lot of fun. It was really a, a, a joy to, to work on that story because I was reliving a lot of fun experiences of my own life. And, and that was, that was great. Yeah. So I, I, if I'm not enjoying it, I don't want to write it. Yeah. Well, yeah, and then it's people might not enjoy reading it if it's not something you enjoy writing too, right? That could go along with it. And that book that you just mentioned, Lethal Voyage, won a Kindle Book Award in 2021, right? So can you talk about how that came about? I figured out early on uh, that there were all these various writing competitions that you could mm -hmm. submit your books to. And it's nice when you get uh, recognition of some kind. You know, the book, this book was a semifinalist or this book is a finalist. And, you know, it, it's nice to be able to, say to people, yeah, this stuff is not crap because look, it, you know, it, it was recognized by this book award as being worthy of at least some level of, of recognition. Yeah. So I think it helps. I think it helps give you some credibility when you're an independent author who doesn't have a long track record. So I had submitted both Righteous Assassin and the second book in the series, Deadly Enterprise, to the Kindle Book Award competition. And both of them made the semifinal list. But never advanced to the finalist list. But Lethal Voyage did very well. It was a finalist yeah. for the for the Clue Award, which is given out by the Chanticleer Book Review. It was a finalist for uh, the award given out by In Detail Magazine, which is oh. a, a magazine that that you know, specializes in independent publishing. And then it won the 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 Kindle Book Award as best mystery thriller of the year for 2021. So I was thrilled. To, uh, to finally get one that I actually got first place. And so, you know, that, that was just this past November. It's so about four or five months ago. 
Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm working on trying to figure out a way to take that and turn it into more sales. But yeah. it's nice. It's nice to be able to say, hey, this is a this one this one won the award. It was it was the best book of the year in its genre. And the the Kindle Book Award is great because it doesn't have 65 different categories. It's only got seven categories. So it, it means something more when mm-hmm. you when you win an award where you know all of the mysteries and thrillers and suspense books are all in one category and. And your book was the was the best. So that was nice. Yeah, that is great. Well, congratulations. Thank you. So as far as Mike Stoneman, you described a little bit about him, but one question is the Mike Stoneman in the original short story you did, did you have to change much of him to kind of flesh him out into this full character that was going to live in multiple novels or was he kind of established really well in that short story that you kind of knew him enough to keep going with him? He's morphed a lot over time. The The, the character is the same. And that a short story is a short story. There's only so much you can do about backstory for a character when you only got 5,000 words. That was a crazy thing about that competition is they, they didn't announce that there was a word limit until I had finished the story. So the story oh was eight, the story was 8,000 words. And then they announced that the, the limit was going to be 5,000 words. <laughs> so like okay, <laughs> I, I had to do a lot of editing, uh, which is a great exercise in editing. But the the character intrigued me, and so I it, I wrote a lot of a backstory for Mike. I've got pages and pages and pages of Mike Stoneman's backstory that has never made it into any of the books yet, but it's just kind of there so that I know who he is and his motivations and and his history. But he's been a lot of fun to, to work with. He's, he's not me. There's a little bit of me in him, though. Yeah. And so it, it's, uh, he's like my proxy in, in these books, which is, it's been a lot of fun. You're not done with him yet after five books? Probably not, although I'm not writing a Mike Stoneman book right now. I got finished with the five books. At the end of book five, and I'm not going to do any spoilers here, but at the end of book five, there's kind of a pause. There's a There's been a story arc that started with Righteous Assassin, and that story arc reaches its conclusion in the fifth book called Perilous Gambit, which is set in Las Vegas, another one of my favorite places in the world. So I got to write a story that was set in Las Vegas. That was a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Um but now I am r- working on a book that is set in the same universe as the Mike Stoneman books, but has nothing to do with Mike Stoneman and is a completely separate standalone story with different characters. Mm. And here is where things change because I've, I've been trying to find a literary agent who would be interested in taking me on as a client and then maybe try to help me find a traditional publisher who might be interested in my mm. stories and and you know and whatever other adaptations can be made from my stories because all my all my fans keep telling me oh when is Mike Stoneman going to be on Netflix I said yeah, as yeah. soon as Netflix calls yeah exactly <laughs> but you need an agent for that you can't do anything on on you know derivative works without without them without going through an agent and every agent I have spoken to has told me the same thing which is we're not interested in a series that has already started and has already been self-published. Huh. Apparently, publishers aren't interested. You know, they want to get in on the ground floor or nothing. And so I've said, well, what if I wrote a book that wasn't part of the series? And they, they said, well, in that case, you know, send it to me. Let me look at it. Huh. <laughs> so I'm now writing a book that is very specifically targeted for trying to get a traditional publisher and trying to get an mm. agent. 
and we'll see if it works. If it doesn't work, then fine. I'll self-publish this next one. And then I probably am going to go back to Mike Stoneman because Mike and, yeah. and, and Michelle and Jason and Rachel and the, um, the main characters, they're not done. There's a lot for them still. And I've got a, I've got a folder full of story outlines for, for Mike Stoneman that are still yet to be written. So I'm definitely going to go back there, but right now I've, I've got a different focus and that focus is totally driven by marketing and publishing and, you know, my desire to try to find a, an agent. And so, well, sometimes you do things for specific reasons. Yeah. That's really cool though. And that you've been able to learn more about the industry. And so you can focus there because it makes sense at some point when you're spending this much time doing it to try to make something of it. So if someone wants to read the Mike Stoneman series, they should start at the beginning then. Is that correct? Because there's like ongoing storylines or can they just grab whichever one? They're all they're all standalone stories. So there are no cliffhangers at the end. So it's not like you have to read them in order. It's always good, I think, to start at the beginning to, to, to get to know the characters as they progress, because there's a lot of there's a lot of interpersonal development. There's, there is a story arc, as I said, that is really around the characters and their relationships mm-hmm. and how they build from one book to the next. I wouldn't recommend jumping in at the end. I wouldn't I wouldn't pick it up with book five and read Perilous Gambit and then go back to, to read the earlier book. But you can jump in and read Lethal Voyage, for example. It's a totally standalone, separate story. And if you like those characters, then you can go back and read the first two books and see what happened that that brought them to the point where they were in in book three. And even book four, which is called Fatal Infraction, which is about the murder of the quarterback of the New York Jets, which is another mm. one of my great fantasies. I'm a, I'm a long-suffering Jets fan, so I got to write a book <laughs> about, about murdering the quarterback. You could read that book as a standalone, and there's a few things in there that you'll, you're picking up kind of in the middle of the relationships, but it's not a big problem. You can pick it up there and, and, and then go back and figure out what happened. But it's always better to start at the beginning. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. So do you ever at this point suffer from writer's block? I know some people I've read, I've actually read an article that said writer's block doesn't exist. And I'm like, well, (laughs) you know, I don't know. I guess you haven't had it, but do you ever face that now? Or since you're making up the story, do you pretty get pretty clear before you even go? Well, yes and no. I mean, I'm a, I'm a compulsive outliner. So when I start working on a story, I have a, a general concept of the really broad outlines of the story. But then I sit down and I start outlining the major pro- plot lines and the major characters and then what's going to happen. And by the time I sit down to actually start drafting uh, and writing dialogue and you know describing scenes, the, the book is done in my head because I've, yeah. I've outlined basically every chapter of the book. And now it's just a question of filling in the the details. But for me, I'm not doing it full time. I mean, I still have yeah. a, a day job. And so my writing is a diversion from my from my work. And in that respect, if I have writer's block in the sense of I'm working on the outline for a book, and I'm just kind of stuck on what's going to happen next. Eh, so I just put it down for a week. And I focus yeah. on other things. I mean, I got plenty of other things I can focus on, and then I can come back to it. I, I will tell you, I get a lot of my best ideas in the shower. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah. Wake up in the morning and I'm sitting in the shower and I'm, oh, wait a minute. What if I did that? And now my yeah. biggest problem is trying to remember what I was thinking by the time I get out of the shower and dry off and get dressed and go downstairs and make a note about what I, what I was yeah. thinking. <laughs> because my memory is not as good as it used to be, I guess. You know, uh, 
I'm I'm the same. Like I do stand up comedy, and I'll think of something. If I don't write it down, then it's gone. It will. <laughs> and it may or may not come back. And sometimes it's a bummer that it doesn't. Because I was like, oh, I was really laughing earlier. What was I laughing at? Do you have a <laughs> yeah. pad of paper next to your bed? I have them everywhere. It looks like, <laughs> you know, like in that movie Signs where that girl had all the water glasses everywhere. I'm like that with my paper. There's a lot of paper in this book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, um, I, you dream something yeah. and you wake up and say, what was I just dreaming about? Okay, I know. Write it down. I know. It's hard. So are you an avid reader? <laughs> I, I, I am. I, I don't read as much as I used to just because of time constraints. Oddly enough, what has happened to me is that I, I'm a member of a book club at, at my at my workplace. So oh. I read whatever whatever the book club reads, some yeah. of which is very disappointing, unfortunately. <laughs> the things that are on the bestseller list that are on the Oprah book club list and you read them and you say, ah, eh, that didn't really impress me that much. But I read a lot of independent work because I'm a member of a couple of different groups of, of independent authors. So we read each other's stuff. I do some, some beta reading for some of my, some of my author friends to help them, you know, get feedback on their stories. I'm a member of a group of authors who exchange books and, and read them and, 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 and do critiques of each other's stuff. And so I end up reading a lot of independently published material, but very little, bestsellers. I mean, I used to read John you know, Grisham and <laughs> I read yeah. a lot of, I love uh, Sarah Paretsky and Linda Barnes and, and Michael Connelly, all of Michael Connelly stuff. And um, since I've really been focused last three or four years on, on the writing and trying to get these books done, I've had less and less time to just sit down and enjoy a book just for the sake yeah. of reading. So that's but I think you have to read. You have to read other people's things. You can't just focus on your what mm. you're writing without without reading other people. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's part of it for sure. And I find too, like when I'm performing comedy more, I'll see it because I'm at the club. So I'll see other people. But I don't like when I'm home, I don't focus on watching it. A lot of friends are like, oh, did you see this special? You see this special? It's like, no, because I was out in the club for <laughs> till 11 o'clock. So I couldn't, <laughs> you know. But yeah, that's cool. I like too that you guys have a community of people that are sounds like supportive of each other rather than in nasty competitions or something like that. It's, it's funny with, I think with creative people and it's something I think coming from also from the corporate world, it's a different mindset. The creatives, like they tend to be more supportive of each other. I mean, there are like weird little interactions with certain personalities, but overall it's more supportive because it's kind of like if someone succeeds, they succeed. It doesn't change the fact that you might or might not succeed where in corporate life if someone gets a promotion, you didn't, and it's very cut and dry. That's what my experience is. Well, I can see how that might be the case for, for a lot of people. I'll tell you that as an in-house lawyer, I'm a member of an association of, of in-house counsel oh. called the ACC, Association of Corporate Counsel. And I've been very active in that group. I the, the, was for a couple of years the chairperson of the labor and employment section of the, mm -hmm. of the group. That group of people is amazingly supportive because we're all doing pretty much the same thing for different companies. Right. But, you know, so I can pick up the phone and call one of my colleagues to say, hey, I'm dealing with this. What are you doing about this? Because you probably are dealing with the same problem. I've got a, I've got a, a telephone call later today with about 100 in-house counsel. We've been having this phone call every two weeks for the last year and a half. And it's talking about COVID. You know, what yeah. are you doing about this? What are you doing about that? What are you doing about vaccinations? What are you doing about, you know, social distancing? What are you doing about contact tracing? And we're all sharing with each other yeah. because 
we're not really in competition with each other. We're, we're all trying to do the best job we can for our companies and yeah. we're all, we're all trying to help each other. So it's, it's a great organization of, of in-house lawyers. So we don't really, I don't really feel that any competition with them. And so it, that's also a very supportive group, much like the writers groups that yeah. I work with. We're, I mean, we're all trying to sell the same product more or less to the same audience more or less, but the audience is, hundreds of millions of people. <laughs> and, you know, the time between books is such that, I, I mean, I have a newsletter. So I plug other authors to my newsletter readers nice. in between my own books. Because if my if newsletter readers are just waiting for my next book, it's going to be a year. <laughs> yeah, And, you know, so they got to read something else in between. So I'm happy to, to help other authors if I think the authors are you know, writing good books. Right. I don't mind. I don't mind trying to direct my readers to to those other authors, especially if they're you know running deals and they can get their book for ninety nine cents or a buck ninety nine or something or free. Oh, here, here's a book you should you should think about getting because my next one's not coming for a little while. Yeah, yeah. No, that's great, and that's good with the professional association too. I think it's more. What I've seen is when you're in the same company with people who are in the same kind of job. So besides writing and and your career as corporate counsel you also are a tournament poker player correct <laughs> i do i do play i i used to play a lot more i would like to play a lot more but you know covid did a, did a number on that as well but yeah i play i play poker which is a lot like what i do for work in the sense that you know i i, I do labor negotiations and labor mm-hmm. negotiations and poker have a lot of similarities <laughs> <laughs> So how did you get into doing that at the tournament level versus just casually playing? That's an interesting question. I mean, I, I always used to play poker with my buddies and just you know home games and things. But I, I guess it was really when internet poker became a really big thing in the late 90s. Even after that, I guess the early 2000s. I was not getting out a lot in those days. I had three kids at home and playing poker online became something that was that was fun to do and and on that you can play you can play tournaments or you can play cash games but tournaments were always a more fun for me and then Atlantic City is not that far about 90 minutes from where I live so my buddies and I would you know, a couple of times a year would take a little trip road trip down to Atlantic City and we would play poker in poker tournaments down there and that's really how I kind of got into it but it's been it's fun it that's another nice diversion because when you're sitting at a poker table, you're f- totally focused on what's going on and you mm-hmm. totally forget about all the other cares you have in the world, work or family or stress or whatever it is, it takes a total backseat and you just focus on what you're, what you're doing at the table. And so I, I like that. Awesome. That's great that you have these other things outside of work to balance you out. I think that's really important. And I'm kind of inspired just by what you're doing with writing too, to be honest, because it's, I think I'm one of those people who's always said like, oh, I have a book in me. Do you have any advice or mantra that you would like to share or that kind of resonates with you a lot that you go back to? No, for me, it, I mean, at this point, I mean, I'm, I'm 61 years old and one day I'm going to, I'm going to write a memoir, but I'm not old enough yet. I got, I got a few more years of experience in front of me, but you, you got to find things you like and just do them. I know too many people who complain that they they wish they had something in their lives that they really enjoyed. I say, well, why don't you go find it? 
and and do it. It's they're, they're out there. And you know, for me, there's my writing and yeah, my, my 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 poker. You know, I'm, I'm a big a big New York Mets fan, so you know, baseball season, which is a little tough right now with the with the work stoppage, but. You know, yeah. you, you find something you enjoy and you and you just go do it. I mean, if you want to do a podcast, you know, do a do a podcast. You know, find agree. a subject matter that you're interested in and just do it. I mean, you know, there there's a thousand, a million people out there who have the same interest as you. Just go find them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, that's actually, I think, really good. And I feel like every time someone hears that advice, maybe another person will do something. That's what I always hope. So if you do something, write to me and let me know and I'll let Kevin know too. So the last set of questions I have are called the fun five and it's my way of kind of putting everyone into a control group really, I guess. What's the oldest t-shirt you have and still wear? (laughs) I will confess to being a huge uh, Star Trek nerd. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, so I actually have a T-shirt that says Starfleet Academy that I got from the Star Trek experience in Las Vegas in about 2003 or something like that. Nice. And uh, I still I still pull that out and, and exercise in it. <laughs> I don't wear it out in public a whole lot, but it's, it's definitely still in the active rotation. Nice. That's cool. And that's a good age. Sometimes I have people who are really young or people just go, well, I, I throw everything away. And I'm like, oh. You know, but I like that you've kept it. Good. <laughs> Thank you. So as as we all know, I mean, during the pandemic, especially during the, well, it's still the pandemic, but during the time when we were isolating, it felt like Groundhog's Day a lot for a lot of us, like the movie. And so what song would you have your long, alarm clock play every day if it was Groundhog's Day <laughs> and you were Bill Murray, which I was Bill Murray. Cool. Uh- <laughs> yeah. I mean, that'd be cool. <laughs> I mean, it'd be nice to be Bill Murray. Good to be Bill right. Murray. I do. Re- I do remember one time in my life when when the alarm went off right at the moment that Van Halen was singing "Jump," mm. and I say that that will wake you up in the morning. And I, <laughs> Jump! <laughs> ah! Yeah, I'm awake. I'm awake. I think that's yeah, probably yeah. It. that's that's probably All my right. my 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 wake up song is uh, "Jump." Right. Awesome. <laughs> All right, that's cool. And that yeah, that will wake you up. That was a fun video too. All right, so coffee or tea or neither. Tea, only tea. Don't ever drink coffee. What what kind of tea do you like? This morning I'm drinking Lion's Irish breakfast tea. I have a tea maker in my in my little home office here behind me. There's a I have a bar in my basement. And so I early on in the pandemic I brought a coffee machine down to the basement, plugged it in. So I make a whole pot of tea every morning and nice. I drink tea all day long and for some reason I, I, I missed the formative years when you learn how to like coffee. I never learned how to like coffee. <laughs> That's not bad. It's not healthy, pretty much, because the caffeine's really gets a bit rough. And you find that out the first time you get a headache from not having it and realize, yeah, they're Yep. <laughs> coffee um, withdrawal. No no. Yeah, exactly. So can you think of something that just makes you crack up when you think of it or laugh hard you cry or something that happened recently? I, I would say what what consistently makes me laugh is Monty Python. I'm dating myself a little bit there, okay. but I told you I'm old. But <laughs> that's we, we we have a whole series of of Monty Python on DVDs that we still watch. Yeah, and always when you when you need a laugh, that's uh, that's where we go. Do you say lines to each other? Like oh, I like to mention the constantly. shrubberies. <laughs> Roger the shrubber. Yes. Okay. Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> My wife and I. The first movie we ever went. Two to see together was the life of Brian. 
And that was wonderful. Our son's middle name is Brian as a result. And uh, oh but yeah, we, 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 we recite lines to each other from movies all the time. Airplane is a big one. Lots of lines <laughs> from that. Yeah. It's, it's a, we have a whole language we could, we could speak in that's just movie lines that other people probably wouldn't even understand. <laughs> that's awesome. Cool. And then the last question is who inspires you right now? Well, I mean, right now, I think that we're all inspired by Zelensky, the, the president of Ukraine, who was mm-hmm. a comic. So you you could yeah. be yeah. inspired by that. You could be the I president know. of a country. Well, I'm just uh, like, yeah, would I do a good job? Probably not. I'm, but I'm only doing five minute sets right now. So maybe he had worked his way up. <laughs> but he's it's amazing. It's just it's yeah. amazing to watch what how, how he's handling the situation. And it's got to be just every moment of every day is just anguish. And he has been a, an inspiration, I think, to his to his people and to the rest of the world. So he's now he's now elevated himself to a status that is probably going to stick with him. I hope he lives long enough to uh, to enjoy it. Yeah, I agree. He's really incredible. He's a he's a star is rising. Yeah. So as far as how people should look you up, where do you want them to go and how do you want them to find you? Well, they certainly can find me at my website, which is very easy. It's kevingchapman.com. Mm-hmm. And, and everything you need from me is, is there. The, the books, the, the audio books, which are their own story. <laughs> I've, <laughs> self, I've self-narrated all my audio books. Oh, so, awesome. Yeah, that's, uh, that's been a whole process of... What do you do with that marketplace and uh, how do you get into it? And you, know, you just do it yourself sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> and it's all there. Did you have to go to a voice coach or anything or you just. A lot of trial and error. Mm-hmm. My father's actually a radio guy. So oh, uh, I, okay. I grew up around, around somebody talking into a microphone, but there was a lot of, a lot of trial and error trying to figure out the technical aspects of how to, how to, create an audiobook and I, I made them all made all the mistakes <laughs> yeah and uh five audiobooks six if you count re-recording righteous assassin which i had to go back and re-record the whole book from from start to finish oh wow well it, it was necessary because of things that happened the first time around that's that's you know 100 hours of my life i'm never going to get back but yeah <laughs> that's fine yeah but no it's, it, it was it was a great process and and now that i've done it enough i feel like i'm able to do it without necessarily feeling like a novice at it but that that was a that was a journey yeah (laughs) it was a a process yeah i can imagine but they're all there on my website and people can find uh find me there i'm on i got a facebook group for the mike stoneman series called the mike stoneman thriller group so you can also find me there on on facebook Okay, super. Well, thank you. And I'll have all that in the show notes. So Kevin, it was really a lot of fun talking to you. Thanks for being on. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me. It's been a, a nice afternoon. Thanks for listening. You can learn more about the guest and what was talked about in the show notes. Joe Mafia created the music you're listening to. You can find him on Spotify at Joe, M-A-F-F-I-A. Rob Metke does all the design, for which I am so grateful. You can find him online by searching Rob, M-E-T-K-E. Please leave a review if you like the show and get in touch if you have feedback or guest ideas. The pod is on all the social channels at, at More Than Work Pod or at Robbie Comedy on TikTok and the website is morethanworkpod.com. While being kind to others, don't forget to be kind to yourself.